0: Hey there, Magic Lantern listeners. There is no opening scene this time because this is our special year-end episode where we're covering so many movies, it wouldn't be fair to choose just one. Before we get started, do you have anything you'd like to say to everyone?
1: Well, I'm just excited I finally get to do my four-hour-long retrospective of the films of Alan Alda. Are you ready?
0: You know how much I love The Four Seasons.
1: That one's not included. Oh. I had to cut that one for time. Sorry.
0: All right. Well, let's see what else we've got then.
1: Let's go. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
0: And I am Cole Rolane and this is a special episode this time around. We are at episode 121 today, and this is our 2019 edition of our annual Ants in Your Pants extravaganza. This is our year-end celebration of the films that were our favorite discoveries, our favorite first-time watches, and we each came up with a list of our top 10 for the year. I've got mine arranged in chronological order of release. How do you have yours set up? Same for me. Is there anything that you want to talk about in particular before we get into this?
1: Well, as always, it was a great crop to choose from and really difficult for me to narrow down to just 10. I had over 20 in my raw list. I don't know about you.
0: Mine was significantly limited, and I'll get to that at my wrap-up as to why I feel like that
1: was. Any big trends or commonalities in what you saw this year?
0: I'll save it after we go through them. Ah, got it. Well, since we're doing chronological, I guess the oldest maybe goes first. My very first one is 1933. How about you?
1: My earliest is 1959. I started way later.
0: Okay, well, then I'll start with mine then. And my first choice is Lot in Sodom from 1933, and that's directed by James Sibley Watson and Melville Weber, two very 1933 names. It stars Friedrich Hock, Hildegard Watson, Dorothea House, and Louis Whitbeck. And it's an experimental silent short, for the most part, based on the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah, with an emphasis on the Sodom part of things.
1: Woo ooh la la. If
0: you know what I mean. This is the same filmmaking team that had shot an adaptation of Poe's Fall of the House of Usher five years previous. And this really made a big impression on me for a couple of reasons. The first is how striking it is with its visual imagery. All of those expressionist touches that they used for Fall of the House of Usher were just multiplied and refined, it felt like. This really is a film for cinematographers. You can feel how they were grasping for innovation with multiple exposures, incorporating miniature models, so you know I love that, with life-size sets, along with various other cinematic tricks that were then in their infancy. It's only slightly more concerned with relaying an actual coherent traditional narrative than Fall of the House of Usher. And what stands out about that is the second thing that got my attention. This juxtaposition of the biblical tale with its really frank treatment of sexuality. When you see it, I think you will be surprised. There is a shocking amount for the time, I think, of nudity and especially homoerotic activity, even for a pre-code film. It essentially starts with as close as you can get to a gay orgy as you could put on screen in 1933. And it also makes the the behind-the-scenes stuff a little bit more interesting in this one, too. Watson said that the composer for this film, Alec Wilder, was actually responsible for a lot of the casting and that he was especially skilled at coaxing that right facial expression and that he put the whole crew in a good humor.
1: Behind-the-scenes, indeed. Yeah,
0: and while the credited composer was doing that... A different musician actually composed the score, and one of the set designers was also contributing to the casting at the same time, with Watson saying that it was he who, and I quote, brought us our leading sodomites, two uninhibited and extremely handsome young men from the Polish community, unquote.
1: I feel like I'm hearing the story of Cabaret somehow.
0: I'm not sure what was going on on the set, but the film that they actually turned out is very impressive. What's your first choice?
1: Now, this was all because of you, and my first choice is Good Morning from 1959, directed by Yasujiro Ozu, with Keiji Sada, Yoshiko Kuga, Chishu Ryu, and Kuniko Miyake. So this ended up being my first Ozu.
0: Really? Yes. I don't think I realized that.
1: Well, I think it was you. I mean, we're going back months at this point, Mm -hmm. so you probably don't remember, but I think it was you that suggested that I start... Here And I'm kind of wondering Mm. why. Maybe it's exuberance. It looks so great. Maybe the sibling dynamic.
0: It's coming back to me now that that's why I recommended it. I think it's a nice easing into Ozu that still gives you the great overview of a lot of his normal themes.
1: Which I'm sure I will find more about as I get more into his catalog. Now, Good Morning is the story of two young boys who stopped speaking in protest after their parents refused to buy a television set.
0: It makes me smile just when you describe it, when I think back about
1: it. Absolutely. It's incredibly heartwarming and also very, very funny without being pandering. Now, this was his second film in color, which is really surprising to me. And evidently, as I was reading more about this, it's the film that looks least like his other films. So again, something for me to explore. And it's incredibly interesting to watch this view of the world through a child's eyes as we are contemplating... Our tendency as adults to fill up spaces and conversations with meaningless small talk. I absolutely love this and I can't wait to get more into the catalog.
0: Well, I'm going to back it up a few years again, and my next choice is The Baker's Wife from 1938, and that's directed by Marcel Pagnol and starring Raymou, Jeanette Leclerc, and Fernand Charpin. And it's about a small village that is thrown into chaos when the baker's young wife runs off with a younger man and the baker in his despair is no longer tending to his ovens so no one in the village can get their bread.
1: This narrowly escaped being on my list as well because we saw it and loved it.
0: Yeah, another year, another wonderful Marcel Pagnol discovery that we were lucky again enough to see on the big screen and... Peniel shows up on my list again later in another capacity. And while this doesn't quite have the same joy and epic emotional scope of the Marseille trilogy, but how many things do, to be fair? That's a bit of an unfair standard to hold anything to. On its own, this is marvelously entertaining and still gave us a bit of that emotional roller coaster. If anything, compared to that, this maybe feels a little more lived in because. Of the literal and figurative size of the Marseille trilogy, those films I think they can sometimes feel like the characters are metaphors rather than individuals. This keeps its focus narrow enough that I pay more attention to the characters' idiosyncrasies and how they function as people instead of as larger symbols. It's also a little less forward-thinking in terms of gender relations, but I find it a little superior in terms of the depiction of the interconnectedness of life in the village. Another thing I love, the supporting cast gets more to do and they are more than up to the task with this one. And then the film leaves me with plenty to think about in terms of infidelity, forgiveness, the range of Remu's tenderness and vindictiveness at the same time. The sacrifices that Aureli makes and that tension between the longings of erotic love and then the responsibilities of dutiful affection. And it gets really dark at the end and that cloud lingers after the credits roll it tells us that things aren't so simple.
1: I'm going to get even darker, <laughs> if that's okay. And I chose next, Taxi Driver mm-hmm. from 1976. A bombshell, if there ever was one. Directed by Martin Scorsese with Robert De Niro, Jodie Foster, Sybil Shepherd, Peter Boyle, and Harvey Keitel. De Niro is a mentally unstable Vietnam War vet working as a nighttime taxi driver in New York City who becomes increasingly isolated and fixated on saving a very young prostitute. So how did it take me so long to see this? That's a question I'll ask myself over and over again.
0: I don't know. This is one of those perennial, if it's on anyone's list of, I can't believe you haven't seen this by now. It's got to be one of the top 10 of those.
1: I probably was holding off. I'm not sure that I thought I would be ready for it. In part, I think I was expecting it to be... Number one, more brutal. And number two, possibly more arrogant, if that makes sense.
0: I was wondering how you'd feel about that aspect of it, since I don't know how it would have aged for you since you didn't see it at the time of its release. And things have changed so much when we look at the broader incel community as it is now and what this would look like through 2019 eyes.
1: And we talk sometimes about the sort of person that likes a thing in a certain way, Mm -hmm. But thank goodness for me, the film doesn't go that route that I feared. We've got plenty of time to observe and get to know Travis. And what struck me most about him being such an outsider is that he doesn't seem to know how to talk to anyone, including himself. It's such an isolating experience then being in his body. And I guess maybe Paul Schrader was possibly writing about himself.
0: Mm, I definitely think so.
1: Yeah. And this pathology of loneliness. And I think he captures that pathology in many facets. And then I also have to mention the incredible Bernard Herrmann score. Mm -hmm. I think we're just constantly kept off balance. And I remember the arc of watching it, thinking about being sonically ground down again and again, and then something changes. I like also that I still don't know what I believe about Travis's war experiences or his recollections in general.
0: So you don't have a firm footing, for instance, as far as the ending is him romanticizing what has happened or even just making it up out of whole cloth?
1: Yes, and I like that I continue to think about that.
0: Okay, well, step back three decades with me again for this one. And I think this is one that also could have easily ended up on your list. My number three is The Black Raven from 1943. And that's directed by Sam Newfield, starring lantern favorite George Zuko, Wanda McKay, Brian Folger, and Glenn Strange. And it's about a group of travelers that are forced by bad weather to congregate at a mysterious roadside inn, and not all of them survive the evening. This is the latest addition to my ever-growing list of favorite dark and stormy night, quote-unquote, movies. It's more like The Old Dark Hotel than The Old Dark House. And it has some of our definite genre favorites involved. First and foremost, George Zuko. He is quickly becoming one of my favorite genre character actors of the 30s and 40s.
1: And this is a bit of a departure because he has the main role here, which we don't often see.
0: No, he's either usually the villain or a lesser, more sinister side character. For instance, he played Dr. Moriarty opposite Basil Rathbone's Sherlock Holmes. He was in versions of The Cat and the Canary and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He did mummy movies, zombie movies, mad scientist movies. He's really great, and he's always such a fantastic presence. In this case, exuding a kind of a world-weary crime kingpin menace. We've got Glenn Strange also, who took over for Boris Karloff as Frankenstein's monster. In this case he plays kind of a hillbillyish muscle and comic relief. It doesn't reinvent the wheel as far as this type of thing goes, but everyone puts just enough of a spin on these stock characters to elevate it a little bit. Zuko is a canny old gangster but not a parody of Warner Brothers tough guys. Wanda McKay does more than the usual thankless task of romantic interest for the dopey detective. She's really forthright with her father, for instance, about her motivations and his lack of care for her all her life. Robert Middlemass is her father, and he barrels through this thing, dishing out some pretty bitter and witty insults. And when that doesn't work, he's not above slapping a guy around. So there's murder an elopement, an embezzled half a million dollars and nowhere for anyone to go. It won't be for everyone, probably, but if you're a fan of this subgenre, you'll probably enjoy how they wind up the usual story mechanics of this and let it go.
1: We'll get ready for some presents in my next film, and that is 1977's White Rock directed by Tony Malam with James Coburn. I'm so
0: glad you chose this one.
1: Oh, it's so wonderful. And it also features Olympic athletes from around the world.
0: And it also features music from Rick Wakeman. It sure does, but (laughs)
1: hang on for that. So this is, pretty simply, a documentary about the Winter Olympics at Innsbruck in 1976. But it's set apart from anything else you might experience in the sports documentary genre, by the presence and participation of Coburn, because he jumps into these sports and of course looks stunning doing it. He's been my favorite for a long, long time and watching him look suave all over Innsbruck is a pleasure. And the take on the film is really interesting too because they tackled just six events and not typically the big ones that you might be thinking of.
0: Yeah, they spend a lot of time with the bobsled, for instance. It's
1: really awesome because you are there. You're inside the sled at speed. It's phenomenal. And I think that you can see that the director, Tony Malam, was influenced by the only two films he thought worked for the Olympics, in his words. And those were Olympia and Tokyo Olympiad. So you know his mind was in the right place. And we've got that best-selling soundtrack by Rick Wakeman, it was hugely popular. It played in Britain for over six months.
0: It made me wish that all the athletes had sparkly capes on <laughs> and wizard hats. <laughs>
1: that would have been pretty awesome. I think Coburn could have pulled that off. And thanks again to you because you suggested this one and it was just so much fun. I think it made my day, my week probably.
0: Back in time we go again for my number four and that is Panique from 1946 directed by Julien de Vivier, another one of our favorites and starring Michelle Simone and Vivienne Romance. And it's about the murder of an elderly woman and the scheming of the murderers to deflect suspicion onto an innocent man who lives in the same courtyard who happens to know the details of who committed the crime. Once again, Michelle Simone, another triumph. I can't think of a performance of his that I've seen that I don't like. And he is all over the map. It's such a varied body of work. You look at Boodoo Saved from Drowning, La La Court of Shadows, this. To be such an unconventional and sometimes misanthropic old reprobate, he had an amazing facility to exhibit these more universally tender and complex personality traits. He's always a joy to watch, and this is no exception. The other thing I always end up thinking about when this pops up in my mind is what a complicated thing it is to try to tell these stories that even indirectly pick at that very fresh scab of the occupation, collaboration, and anti-Semitism in France in 1946. Add to that that de Vivier had spent the great majority of the war years in Hollywood, and so you've got this, who is he to come back here now and tell us about how things are? Which I think is a legitimate question. He did not have to suffer through and make those decisions the same way that they did, staying there. It adds another layer to Simone's outsider status that I think is really compelling to think about. And then one of the other reasons that I added this to the list is because the Criterion release has a really excellent, very illuminating feature on subtitling films. So if you want to look deep into the abyss of human nature and also learn about what gets translated and what doesn't, then pick up this title.
1: My next choice, I think, is my one kind of left field choice. And also sort of falls in that kind of old dark house genre a bit.
0: I'm curious to hear what this is.
1: I picked Dominique from oh. 1979, directed by Michael Anderson with Cliff Robertson, Gene Simmons, and Virginia Agutter. Gene Simmons plays the wife of a greedy man, that's Cliff Robertson here, who comes back to haunt him after he literally scares her to death. Michael Anderson, the director, also directed The Dam Busters and Logan's Run, but this film, Dominique, doesn't have that great of a reputation, though I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. It was just sort of an out-of-nowhere selection that came to us, and it caught me by surprise how much I enjoyed it. I think maybe part of the reason is that it was produced by Milton Sabotsky, whom we know from Amicus. Michael Jaston is also in it, and we mentioned him in our Patreon bonus episode on the British anthology series Thriller, but I hadn't yet watched the show at that point that we watched Dominique in order to see his episodes. Plus, it is super fun to see Cliff Robertson as the heavy.
0: Yeah, this is a great Vinegar Syndrome release is who put this out. They salvaged this from the VHS dustbin, basically. It's especially appealing to those of us, I think, if you're out there and you're a fan of those mid-70s ABC movie of the week horror films that got made. Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, A Cold Night's Death with Robert Culp and Eli Wallach. That's a favorite of ours. If you like that sort of spooky TV movie, this is right in your wheelhouse.
1: The focus on Letterboxd, not fans. <laughs> if you're wondering who gave it a four-star review, that would be me, I guess. I'm the only one.
0: Okay, for my number five, I take a huge chronological leap forward, and I think this is where I catch up with you when we finally get on the same timeline. My choice for number five is Babylon from 1980.
1: And our first and I think only shared choice on the list.
0: And this was directed by Franco Rosso, starring Brinsley Ford, Carl Howman, Trevor Laird, and Brian Bovell, among many others. And it's about a young man who's part of sound system culture and his struggle to play music while dealing with the strife on the job and at home, racism, police violence. This was quite possibly the title that I was looking forward to the most this year as soon as I knew that it was coming. It finally saw a theatrical release in the U.S. this year after almost three decades. And the energy coming off of this thing is incredible. We first saw the trailer when we were at Austin Film Society catching something else, and I almost couldn't concentrate on whatever it was we were there to see after that.
1: I'm with you, and I think you can understand all of these decades later what it might have felt like when you saw it at the time, if you were lucky enough to see it at the time. Probably like a bomb went off if you were just this random British viewer not having any connection to what's happening in your urban landscape, or if you were part of the scene and finally got to see aspects of your life and your friends that you could relate to.
0: I often talk about how much I love cinema as a window into worlds that I couldn't experience directly. And this is certainly one of those. Brinsley Ford is incredible to watch here. You see so many things play across his face, but most specifically this pained balance of understanding that music or any aspect of your culture that you love like that, especially creative or artistic outlets can be such an escape from your day to day, but how it never also quite gets you there when you live surrounded by people that want to beat you down every day, specifically because of that culture.
1: Franco Rosso wrote it with Martin Stellman, and Stellman said that they set out to make a British reggae version of Mean Streets.
0: Yeah, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall for that process, because when I think of this character, striking back is not a viable option. It's only going to invite more misfortune and suffering, maybe even death. So what do you do? If you're going to encounter that oppression anyway, why not be reckless? It's a hard question. Even among those closest to you, it makes for friction. It's great because you simultaneously feel that this is so fresh and vital that there are a million ways it could go, but at the same time, also so honest that there's probably only one way that it can go. It lived up to any of my self-induced hype and then some.
1: Definitely. And I would assume that you don't feel that it fell into the category of cinematic tourism or poverty tourism. They certainly set out to make something that felt true as much as they could represent not being in the culture.
0: Okay, for my number six, I'm sticking with the UK and I'm making it even more bleak in this case. And I am going with Threads from 1984. And that's directed by Mick Jackson, starring Paul Vaughn, Karen Meager, Jane Hazelgrove. Phil Rose, and Victoria O'Keefe, among a number of others. It's about a nuclear attack and the resulting effects on the city of Sheffield in the UK, and this is just bleak beyond all description. We had the movie the day after in the US, and that was difficult enough.
1: I still remember watching that as a kid and being terrified.
0: Me too. But this is straight up traumatizing. I cannot imagine seeing Threads as a young person. It would have quite literally been one of those viewing experiences that would shape the rest of my life. Sometimes, I guess, you have to put yourself, or in this case, the entire nation, through the ringer to make your point. And This is probably evidence of cultural bias on my part, but I am sure I generally think of the Cold War as the U.S. and Russia with a little bit of Cuba thrown in most of the time. I don't tend to think automatically of other European powers in relation to that so much, and this is a bracing reminder that that doomsday scenario would obviously affect the global population. And while the day after scared us and served as a bit of a sensational wake-up call, Threads comes along a year later and just pushes your face right in it. And I think what makes it the more effective of the two for me is that we are more often... Kept in the dark about what is happening on a larger scale in Threads.
1: So do you just feel completely in limbo or hopeless most of the time?
0: It's more a point of it puts us in the mind of the average person on the street. The day after it gives us a sense of what it might be like to have to be holed up in a bunker. Threads makes us feel like we are wandering around in rubble-strewn streets with the smell of burning flesh everywhere. Great. Great. So, feel good hit of the summer is what I'm saying. I do highly recommend it, but prepare to have your day ruined.
1: Well, I'm going to change it up, and I'm going to bring you John Jarrett in tight pants. And that's (laughs) Next of Kin from 1982, directed by Tony Williams with Jackie Karen and John Jarrett, as I mentioned. Jackie Karen plays a young woman who comes back home to take over the family business, which is a rest home for elderly people after the death of her mother pretty strange things start happening quickly, and the clue might just be found in her mother's diary. This film was shot in just 50 days, and I love its economical way of handling the exposition, the reveal, and the scares. And I love the bookending shots of the film, and it's fun that it turned out to be a really creepy old dark house kind of a movie with its great setting.
0: Australian Gothic is how I would describe it, which I didn't expect from the cover art. I expect something a little more supernatural or even slashery.
1: And it took me by surprise. It was a first watch for both of us. And like with any old Dark House movie, it's the inhabitants that provide the scares. And this doesn't disappoint, though. It is very jarring to see John Jarrett of Wolf Creek in those aforementioned tight pants.
0: Yeah, he was a strapping young lad before he evolved into a horrifying killer in the Outback. Who knew? Go figure.
1: So what's next for you?
0: Next is my number seven, and that is Jean de Florette from 1986, directed by Claude Berry and based upon Marcel Pagnol's novel, and it stars Gérard Depardieu, Yves Montand, Danielle Autoy, and Elizabeth Depardieu. And it is about two local farmers in Provence who schemed to swindle a newcomer out of his property.
1: I just love that I finally got to in you for once.
0: <laughs> we'll get to that at the end. I do have a bone to pick. But, so, Panol makes his return to my list here, this time having written the source material. And I suppose that this should signal to me that I need to seek out more of his work more often, since it obviously resonates with me so much. I love it when a film discovery is a doorway like this, not just to a larger filmography, which would be a great thing on its own, but to memoirs, novels, plays. If the rest of his work is as rich and warm and humane and complex as what I've encountered so far, it will be extremely fulfilling to track all this down. In this case, the story is part of a family epic along with Menon of the Spring, and it's just incredibly beautiful, but fair to say a tragedy, would you call it?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: The countryside of Provence sometimes makes it easy to forget about that part of things, I think. You reflect on it somewhat romantically. What appeals to me most is Jean's unceasing labor and determination. I love that about this character. The lengths that he goes to to ensure the success of his various enterprises, it is Herculean, especially considering how much he's being conspired against and undermined the whole time. But it's especially affecting because I read every single one of these actions as being directly born of the love for his family. I have not watched the second part yet.
1: <laughs> I'm stroking my beard Maybe over here. as some
0: sort of misguided protest, because you showed this as one of your choices for our monthly movie nights, and I distinctly remember asking you if it would be an issue to show this on its own, and you said, no, no, it's fine as a standalone, and then As the final scene drifts away, it says, End of part one. I am still mad at you.
1: I watched this for the first time 20 plus years ago. (laughs) I'm just going to go with that.
0: (laughs) I'll get to it very soon because this was a beautiful film and I definitely want to find out how this ends.
1: Well, I've got a question for you before I introduce my number seven choice. Okay. Did you know when the cops won't and the courts can't, stony cooper will give you justice
0: <laughs> i had no idea
1: now you know and that is brought to us in deadly force from 1983 directed by paul aaron with wings hauser joyce ingles and paul Sheenar. wings plays stony cooper who has been kicked off the lapd because he doesn't play by the rules he's freelancing Quote unquote, in New York City, which evidently involves taking down a mad bomber in an unorthodox way, but he's called back to LA to track down a serial killer who has killed the daughter of an old friend. Now you can go check out our Patreon for our groundbreaking episode on Vice Squad, which was really just an opportunity for me to talk about how much I love Wingshauser. We watch Deadly Force. First, before we watch Fi Squad, and this was all thanks to Austin Film Society's Savage Gold series, R.I.P. Savage Gold. We went to the very last one, and this film was our present. So thank you to AFS and Savage Gold for the many years of pleasure that you gave us. Now, Deadly Force is a bit unique because Wings is the quote-unquote good guy here. I think good guy on the edge still, but it is just balls-out fun. From slam bang start to slam bang finish. And he dominates every single frame, though, Paul Sheenar is more than his match as the bad guy.
0: I'm not liking your list a whole lot so far. I have to say, you you're got a, welcome. You get a pretty fun list going there. My number eight is another thing that I was looking forward to for a long time, and that is the Inland Sea from 1991. It's a documentary directed by Lucille Cara based on the travel writings of Donald Ritchie, who also acted as the narrator for the film. In the early 70s, Ritchie wrote a travelogue about his adventures and observations on the inland sea on Japan's western coast. Lucille Cara then came along 20 years later to examine Ritchie's writings and the echoes of what he said a generation down the road. Tonally, this hits me just right. For the most part, it is very meditative and quiet. And having just been to Japan earlier this year, it really does help me recapture a sense of how wonderful it felt to be there. It makes me feel peaceful in a way that is similar to actually having been there. If you're not familiar with Richie, he was an American-born writer that lived in Japan for decades. He wrote a ton about Japanese culture, cinema in particular, in his position as a non-native cultural critic, it interests me an awful lot. It can be dodgy to come into a culture as an outsider and go on to claim yourself as an authority of sorts. I understand going to a place and falling in love with it. I feel that way about Oslo, for instance. But there's a careful balance that you have to strike. And I think that there are a couple of instances in the film and by extension, the book, I guess, where Ritchie crosses a little bit of a line presuming that he is in a position to say what Japan is. And as much as they give me pause, I'm actually glad those instances are there. It gives me something to wrestle with in the film. It's a nice push and pull, because even more than that, there are these extremely soothing and thoughtful moments. He makes a particular observation while approaching one of the islands about simply being a man in a boat that strips everything else away and perfectly communicates what it feels like to experience that transcendent nature of traveling. It's particularly insightful and reassuring in that moment to me. And the overall feeling of the film is very much like that. Watching it closely, I feel edified, and I could just also have it on in the background all the time. And I think every day that I did that, my day would be much better for it. It's great to experience it either directly or even indirectly.
1: My number eight choice is a little bit of a travelogue, maybe indirectly, and that is Lost in America from 1985, (laughs) directed by Albert Brooks with Albert Brooks himself and Julie Haggerty. Brooks and Haggerty play successful yuppies in L.A. who decide to drop out of society and take a cross-country trip in a Winnebago, but it becomes clear that they really can't drop out of society because they are society. Now, this year, you filled in some great Albert Brooks blanks for me, this and Modern Romance, and I'm so glad. By the way, Brooks co-wrote this with Monica McGowan Johnson. He also co-wrote Modern Romance with her. The big surprise to me, first, it was no surprise how funny it was because I was expecting that. The big surprise was how great Julie Haggerty is because her part is so substantial. I tend to think of her a bit as kind of breathy and not relatable to me.
0: She's super underrated, I think.
1: I I totally agree. She completely shines here and I was glad to see that other dimension. I think you can also tell that for the shoot the cast and crew traveled in two Winnebago's shot on location in just 45 days. Albert Brooks said he wanted to add some realism to the idea of Easy Rider and explore this dropping out and dropping back in two weeks later. He was going to originally cast Bill Murray in the lead role, but he was told by Bill Murray's agent, this is back in 1985 that the earliest Murray would be available would be nineteen eighty seven so he played it himself.
0: The only drawback for me is the same drawback with all of Albert Brooks's films that he doesn't shoehorn Bob Einstein into as many scenes as humanly possible, even Good point. playing multiple characters yeah I wish.
1: true or or his other brother too.
0: Okay, for my number nine, I have Bud Yam from 1997, and that's directed by Gaston Kabore, starring Serge Yanogo, Amsatu Maiga, Borema Oedrogo, and Colette Kabore. And it's about a young man who comes under suspicion in his village for being responsible for his sister falling ill through sorcery. He has to go on a quest to redeem himself by finding a healer that can cure his sister's condition, And I saw this as part of my New Year's resolution to become more familiar with African film. This is actually a sequel to the film Wind Cooney, which I also watched as part of that list. And this is one of those cases of the sequel actually surpassing the original, I feel like. I liked the first, but I loved this. Now, there were a number of films that I could have chosen from that experience, but I picked this one to represent that larger list because it made me feel the best. It's the most popular African film ever in the history of Burkina Faso. Wow. And you can really see why. It's a fantastic and extremely accessible example of how African cinema is sometimes used as an extension of an ancient oral storytelling tradition. It doesn't sacrifice complexity of story, though, while unfurling this tapestry that functions as a more broad allegory as well. When Cooney, as a character, he actually goes on a bit of a quest, a hero's journey. You could probably classify it. And he is in this perilous position also as an adopted outsider in his village. So along the way, he's grappling with questions of individual identity and authenticity within a larger African culture. It's really incisive about traditional gender relationships in the culture. And I think it goes far beyond the broad strokes that you typically think of with material that's presented as a fable or as belonging to that oral tradition. Plus, it's not oppressively heavy, which can sometimes be hard to avoid with the more prominent African films from the same time period. It's a good story, movingly told, and you get your happy ending, too.
1: My choice for number nine, I think, ended up being... Maybe the favorite thing that I saw this year, and probably the top of this list if I had to rank it, and that is Kiki's Delivery Service from 1988. It was written, produced, and directed by Hayao Miyazaki with Minami Takayama, Rei Sakuma, and Kape Yamaguchi. Kiki is a 13-year-old witch who leaves home to complete her young witch's mandatory training of one year in a new town and she's got to find a way to make a living. For her, it's her flying ability that sets her apart, and she must also learn how to navigate life when that ability may be gone forever. So up until we saw this on the big screen just a couple of weeks ago, I had my neighbor Totoro in its place. This was actually really the Studio Ghibli year for me. And if Totoro kind of feels like your film, this one feels like mine. I feel like I've been waiting my whole life to see this and I just wish I had had it as a 13 year old. By the way, I was 13 years old when this came out and I still missed it. If I had seen it, I definitely would have left home to try my fortune. (laughs) I relate so much to Kiki, especially those times when she just wants to be alone and is mad at everybody, but maybe also wants a hug. I also love the European setting, and this, of course, is going to be beautiful. That I'm sure it goes without saying if you know Miyazaki. Just a beautiful home run for me. It made me so happy. I left with such a huge smile on my face. Thank you for going with me. You're
0: welcome. It's a film that I love, too. As much as I love Totoro, I think maybe I love this one even more. I think it's universally relatable and so sweet and just perfect. I, that's how I would describe it. It is a perfect movie. Well, for my big finish, I vault all the way into the 21st century, finally, with a film called Living Still Life from 2012, and that's directed by Bertrand Mandico and stars Alina Lowenson and Jean-Marc Montmont. It's an experimental short about an isolated and mysterious woman who lives in a decaying world and collects dead animals, bringing them back to life in a manner through animated films. And then one day a man comes to see her whose wife has recently died. This one is also a part of my New Year's resolutions. In this case, to get better acquainted with one particular filmmaker. That filmmaker I chose to be Bertrand Mandico. I love the experiences that I have had with his films this year. And this, along with Our Lady of Hormones, were probably my two favorites. And if you like Alina Lowenson, whom U.S. indie audiences probably know from a couple of Hal Hartley films, Simple Men and Amateur, then you have hit the jackpot with Mandico because she's collaborated on and performed in a ton of his work. You could call her a muse of sorts, probably. Now, all of these films are so idiosyncratic. It's such a provocative body of work. I would almost call him more of a multimedia artist as much as a filmmaker, because within his films, the great majority of the effects, for instance, they occur in real time and in camera. Characters interact with rear projection. You have set design elements that flare up in the foreground in ways that you would never expect. Diegetic and extra diegetic actions take their place right alongside all these other dualities that he turns inside out, alive and dead, male and female. And I choose this one because with its focus on death and reanimation, it represents to me the ultimate intersection of all of his fascination with both animate and inanimate objects. And I share that fascination with him for the morbid and the erotic and then the way that those combine. It is very French. It is all sex and death. Again, they're not for everyone. They're highly experimental and often hypersexual. You watch enough of this work and you feel like you are covered in mysterious fluids and trapped in this kaleidoscopic netherworld. And I mean that as a compliment. So how about your finale?
1: Well, speaking of France and sex and death, I chose Eight Women from 2002, <laughs> written and directed by Francois Ozon with Danielle Derieux, Catherine Deneuve, Fanny Ardin, Isabelle Huppert, Emmanuel Bayard, Virginie Le Doyen, Ludivine Saunier, and Firmin Richard.
0: Okay, Morticia.
1: La la, la, la. <laughs> It is a darkly comedic musical about eight women, and that includes close and distant family, as well as the household servants. As they gather to celebrate Christmas in an isolated, snowbound cottage, only to find that Marcel, the family patriarch, is dead with a knife in his back. Now, we don't typically do this, but it was a 1st watch us both and you showed it for our holiday movie night.
0: Yeah, I chose it because it seemed to be right up your alley. It's a musical, it's French, it's Christmas, it's kind of a cozy mystery.
1: What's not to love? And I had heard about it when it came out. I just hadn't gotten around to it yet, though I meant to. And it also meant that seeing it so late in the year, it ended up pushing aside another choice that I'd made because this is such a bouncy, juicy, sumptuous delight.
0: So that's it. 10 a piece or 10 with one shared one. Do you have like you asked me in the beginning, any of those patterns that you think emerged in your choices or other things that you found noteworthy this time around?
1: I referenced earlier, I finally got around to seeing a bunch of Studio Ghibli films. I got to see some great documentaries. And because of your African cinema journey, I got to see a bunch of new-to-me films, especially from around the time of independence in various countries. So much to think about.
0: Well, for me... There were very few American choices on my list, only two out of ten, and one of those was an experimental silent film from the early 30s. France was the big winner for me this time around, even though I spent the year with my geographic focus on Africa. Almost half of my list came from France. It also felt a little odd what a huge chronological gap I have, with no films from between 1946 and 1980. I feel like I've abandoned a central tenet of my film philosophy, leaving out the 70s completely this time.
1: Maybe you've seen everything.
0: <laughs> I feel like I usually have a more uniform distribution than that. But it turns out, though, that that's not necessarily true. For instance, seven of my choices from the 2015 list are from the 70s, a big clump of them. Going over previous lists, I think it just underscores that you never know what is going to come out of the given year. And I like that feeling a lot, that unpredictability. I do feel like I didn't watch as much, or as much of a variety, because of my New Year's resolution assignments, quote-unquote. If you're a supporter of our Patreon, you may have heard that episode from the beginning of this year about those resolutions, and one of each from those made it to my list, but between watching films by Bertrand Mandico and from Africa, that took up 60-plus opportunities that I probably would have spread out more throughout the year. And just to note about those resolutions, while I enjoyed and appreciated the experiences, I am not going to do a new batch for 2020. Are you going to do any?
1: Hell no. <laughs>
0: yeah, there were points for me that it felt like homework a little bit and took some of the joy out of the process. I want to go where my whims take me, basically. And I don't like feeling hemmed in. So as a result, I do feel like it was because of these other viewing restrictions that I placed on myself that the pool that I was drawing from was much more limited. You said you had a ton that you had to pare down. I didn't. Looking back at my list of possibilities from 2016, there were more than twice as many that I had to whittle down to a top 10 from that list. I barely had enough that I thought qualified this time. Do you have other honorable mentions that you want to sneak in here while we're talking about it?
1: I sure do. And you know that's (laughs) almost as much fun as going through the top 10 I had to whittle my list down from these other awesome titles, and those included Solar Work, Devil Times Five, Throne of Blood, Toward Matilde, My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, Borom Saray, A Man for All Seasons, How's Moving Castle, Wee Jamakano, The Story of the Minutemen, and The Evil.
0: You know, you got a stout list when those are the runners up. That's a pretty impressive list of honorable mentions. I had some too, but I kind of snuck mine in throughout the year. We've discussed a couple of them already, either as a main episode like Hyenas, or as part of a survey episode like Nightfall from our Noir City episode, or even as recommendations like Cairo Station or Next of Kin, which you already talked about this time. So I've been pretty good about weaving those throughout Now, since we're not going to do resolutions, how about a different angle? What are you looking forward to in 2020? Are there specific releases, anything that you would like to see happen with the podcast? What do you hope for from next year?
1: I sadly don't keep track of releases so much, so it's often kind of a nice surprise when something arrives for us. I think, as always, I'm looking ahead to Noir City. There's always going to be something that I love, and One of those titles that we watched this year we're sort of saving because we think we might do it for an episode next year. It's in the noir category, that's why I mentioned that. But as always, I'm trying to look forward to seeing more things in the theater at the time.
0: I don't have specifics on the release slate, but I just have this lingering feeling that it's going to be great. Because, for instance, as we are recording this, I just came from Uncut Gems, which I feel like... I was shot out of a cannon through a wall. And I mean that again in a good way. I was looking in one of the Facebook groups, one of the cinema groups that we frequent, and someone asked the question yesterday, is cinema dead or dying? Which I think...
1: It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. dumbest
0: question you could ask.
1: Because we still have Maddie Diop's The Atlantics to watch. We've got so much to watch.
0: Yeah, it just proves over and over again when I look, it's one of those things, there is never a shortage. If you are not finding something good you're the one that's not working hard enough. So I'm super excited about everything that's coming. And I guess that brings us to the end of episode 121 and the end of the year 2019. Anything else you want to get in there before we do our final housekeeping here?
1: Nope. Just happy new year to everyone, including my sweet husband sitting across the table from me.
0: Well, thank you. And the same to you. And if you're out there and what we do here is valuable to you, and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level, it gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, now well over 20 hours of material, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com, We're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast. And this is where I usually do our regular shoutouts. But since this is our end of the year show, I just wanted to say thanks to everyone. Thank you if you are listening right now. Thank you for listening throughout the year. Thank you if you've ever shared our links or retweeted us or just told someone about the show. We appreciate all of that because word of mouth is truly how we grow. We don't spend anything on advertising. So if you're helping us by sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can acknowledge you and say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. Just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you'd like to leave a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com
1: and thank you for listening to the magic lantern podcast